Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. And today we have a retired FBI agent calling in, and he's going to talk about his book, Queen of Cuba. He's got some very, very interesting stories to tell us. So I want to welcome Mr. Peter J. Lapp to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, John. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Diving in, man, it's a turbulent world of what's going on. And I don't know, what was your thoughts and processes, you know, the last 22 years you were in service? You know, I, I started, my ambition had always been to get to the FBI. In my mind, it still is the greatest law enforcement agency in the world. And it was the uh, brass ring. There's a lot of other federal law enforcement agencies that do great work, but there's only one FBI. And and when I got there, I didn't really, I kind of had crossed that finish line. I got that brass ring and I was like so happy to just be an FBI agent. I didn't know what I wanted to do after that. So to go through the next 22 years of my career, you know, after just three years into my career, having this kind of case that people have heard about, that books have been written about, that there are podcasts where she has talked about, I just have to pinch myself because I don't want the dream to, I don't want to wake up from the dream. It's like, this is, this is crazy. And, and just tell me, this thing with uh, the Queen of Cuba, I mean, what, what, what is that all about? So 10 days after 9-11, we at the FBI arrested a woman who was uh, spying for Cuba and had been spying for, at that point in time, unbeknownst to us, 17 years. She worked within our government, within our intelligence community, and worked in an agency called the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA. DIA is kind of the CIA of the Department of Defense, where they collect through human intelligence, through through other ways, and then produce analytical products that are supportive to the Department of Defense and the warfighters. So a very important agency within the U.S. intelligence community. And from the day, her first day at the DIA in September of 1985, she was a fully recruited agent of the Cuban Intelligence Service. She went to DIA solely for the purpose of spying for the Cubans. So was really bad and had bad intentions right from the very beginning up until September 21st, uh, 2001, when she could do no further harm because that's when we arrested her for espionage. When you think about spying, right, and you look at Cuba, I mean, what advantage could Cuba get out of having a spy in a justice system in the U.S.? I mean, they're a small island. Mm -hmm. I mean, aren't we past that? I mean, when you think about humanity, I mean, why, why? It's a good question. I mean, when we think about, you know, intelligence threats to the United States, we often, you hear about Russia, China, Russia, China, China, Russia, China, Russia. And those two countries, from an intelligence perspective, are our greatest adversaries. Cuba, over the years, has been prolific in its ability 
in, in large part learned from from the Soviet Union and Russia back with the KGB, but in in also large part in how they've expanded their capabilities. They collect intelligence, in my opinion, uh, from human beings like an Montes, like no other intelligence service. They don't find people that are motivated, like Bob Hansen, you know, although he had some psychological issues, as most do, uh, he, he mostly did it for the money. And Anna had this visceral empathy that, that the Cubans immediately trusted. What they do with her intelligence or folks like her is they trade it as a commodity. You know, they would use it in the early part of her career from 1985 to 1992. They traded her intelligence to the Sandinistas in El Salvador, Nicaragua. And we were, you know, in a very controversial foreign policy, Iran-Contra, if you remember that scandal, obviously. So they would trade intelligence that they've collected from human beings for influence, for raw materials. You know, and I would I would presume they also traded intelligence to the Russians because they've had a relationship with them over the years, who Russia being, you know, one of our top two prime intelligence threats. That's where I think Cuba is underrated and, and underappreciated because of their ability to collect and disseminate, barter, you know, trade, sell intelligence to to some some really bad countries uh, from an intelligence perspective, including, you know, in my mind, Russia. So when you think about all this intel and information and I mean, at the end of the day, what's everybody trying to achieve? Intelligence is collected, whether you're the United States, whether you're Russia, whether you're China, Cuba. Intelligence is collected primarily to inform the key decision makers the policy makers the ability you know you know whether you're going into a negotiation where you're you know trying to uh, uh negotiate nuclear arms you know having intelligence can help the negotiators just as an example so every country sets as a priority uh well not every country but but the bigger world powers, if you will, or world players work very hard at collecting intelligence to inform their policymakers, their presidents, their their dictators, their whoever, to try and keep the regime in in power, like I think has you know, Cuba has done for sixty plus years, or to, you know, use it to trade with other countries that can help them in other areas. You know, Cuba's a pretty impoverished country, and I have no doubt that it's traded intelligence with countries to get grain to feed its people to get you know some could be oil for for all for all we know you know trying to stay alive to a certain degree but to keep not just to keep the people alive but really to keep the regime in power and i think that's where cuba and russia and and china to a degree excel and using intelligence to keep their separate regimes in power how did y'all catch on to this lady who was arrested for espionage what was you know, how do you get a tip on that if someone's very, very close in a system? Generally speaking, spies catch spies. When when I worked at the government, I had a clearance and I had to fill out a form that had past pl- employers and past addresses. And, and that application to get a clearance and that background investigation that was conducted on me, for example, has never revealed and un- uncovered a spy. You know, generally speaking, an intelligence officer at another country, you know, Bob Hansen, for example, the Russians recruited Bob Hansen or he volunteered. 
And he identified individuals that the U.S. intelligence community had recruited in Russia, you know, intelligence officers in the KGB that we were operating that were there in Russia. And Bob Hansen said, you're looking for these three names. And then the Russians went ahead and investigated those three names, prosecuted and then executed, one of which in an incredibly brutal way. So that's generally how we get on to cases like this, where you have someone from the other side who decides to betray their government, their employer, and, and work for the other side, in our case, the United States. And the, the story, you know, Montez begins spying in 1985, but we, we don't get a, a whiff of that until, until the mid-1990s, where we start to get an indication that Anna is, well, um, an unsub, we call them unknown subjects, unsubs, like we know there's a penetration, we know there's a person, but we don't know a name. So the FBI calls them unsubs. We knew that there was a significant amount of unsubs in the United States who were working for the Cuban Intelligence Service, and Anna became identified as one of those. So how, how do you compare that to today? You know, what was that? She was, what, you said 2001? Is that mm -hmm. what you said? 2001? Yeah. How, how do you compare that, you know, 22 years later to today when there's so much information out there than there was 22 years ago? So spying has been going on as far back as the Bible. I mean, you know, Cain versus Abel, Judas. You know, Jesus had to worry about Judas. He didn't know that Judas was, was in, in essence, committing espionage against him, although it was, you know, kind of part of the plan, if you will. It's been going on forever, and I have no sense that it will stop. I think countries are going to spy against each other until until this world stops turning. And and it's just a, a nature, a part of what countries do under the guise of, you know, national security. You know, in each country would define that in their own terms versus, you know, kind of a globalistic, you know, worldview. It's all what protects our nation from X threat. Or, you know, in the case of Cuba and Russia and China, you know, what what protects our regime, our our power, our hold on power over our citizens from, you know, our their main adversaries, uh, those three countries, you know, being the United States as a main adversary. So I'm kind of in the humanitarian space, spiritual. I think, you know, narratives have been exhausted to an extent where where can we ever get to a place with these other countries where we can actually benefit each other instead of trying to make chess moves for power. I mean, is it the ego that keeps that intact from these leaders and so forth? Because I think, you know, when you look at a lot of these situations and, and some of these things are not working, do you think something like that could ever happen? If they're trying to do a one world, you know, they say there's this one world nation and all this. I mean, is that one world nation control or is that going to, is that help humanity? What, I mean, what is that? I mean, you know, there's so much misinformation is like, you know, when are we going to help each other as human beings? You know, it's interesting. Um, Anna would, Anna would probably very, very much agree with you. I think she, she doesn't see herself as an American per se. She, she told me that she sees herself as a citizen of the world, whatever that means. You know, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I probably don't share, you know, those views. I look at, for example, Oppenheimer, the movie, and, and I, I, I have the book, but I haven't, I haven't dove into it yet. You know, you think about the nuclear, the nuclear bomb. 
and and the creation of that invention and how the Russians were trying to steal it and how the United States was trying to beat the Germans to develop the nuclear bomb. And, and whether that was because of power or whether it was because they believe, the United States believed that it's 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 a force of good. And that if we had the bomb versus the Germans having the bomb versus the Russians having the bomb, the Soviets having the bomb, you know, I, I think that, I don't know if I would say that that's ego, but we, but we can't using that. And probably that's the worst case. The most drastic example is the nuclear mm -hmm. bomb. Could we share the nuclear bomb technology with the world? Absolutely not. So many people that are bad out there would use that in my mind for evil versus good. And mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, it, it, I don't know that we can we can have this worldview where everyone kind of gets along in a, 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 a utopian kind of society. I think we're going to have competing strategic objectives, you know, whether we're US versus Cuba, France versus Russia, you know, I, I don't I don't think there's going to ever be a situation where we all are living, you know, in one big happy world family. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's me being a pessimistic. I don't know, but mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't know if the reality is just knowing what I know spending 22 years in the FBI. There's bad people out there that would do harm to us if we didn't under the guise of national security do all we could to protect people from countries from stealing X, Y, and Z. When you think about it, when I look at human behavior and you look at algorithms and understanding human behavior, and the thing I think that people don't realize is whatever we see, whatever we listen to, whatever we watch has a major, major influence on how we live our lives. And as long as we continue to perpetuate negativity, or darkness or whatever it is, we're going to live in that space. It's just like when you look at Netflix and, and, and you understand that probably 70, 80% of their programming is dark because that algorithm is reading humanity and understanding what humanity likes. So, I mean, I understand that if you're in a, an agency, a government agency, that there's going to be a lot of dark and a lot of, <laughs> a lot yeah. of things that are not good. So I understand that. Why can we not start from a positive place? How do we, how do we get there with a government agency starting with a positive initial thought? Because most people's initial 10, 10 seconds of thought is negative. And maybe it's uh it's assuming positive intent, right? Is that what you're kind of alluding to? Uh, and, yeah, and I mean, like everybody approaches things from a negative direction. You know, yeah. this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. I never hear people saying, "Hey, this is great. This is wonderful." You know, maybe a few people, whatever. So if you put an agency like the FBI in a bubble, right? Mm -hmm. Is there any thoughts that you would have for things you might would change culturally? About that bubble, just if, if that was a, a character or a human being, that agency was a human being, was there any things that you ever thought that you could, you could tweak to make better? Well, yeah, to your point, remember back when the, the white, after January 6th, when the White House and the Capitol were surrounded by those fences. And I remember feeling personally, not just the regular fence at the White House, but the super, superimposed, you know, the bigger fence. I remember feeling really sad. Like, how can we assume positive intent where we have this extra barricade around the people's house? This, the, the White House belongs to the American people, but we can't assume positive intent because there could be be bad actors who want to take advantage of the turbulence of the times and and do bad things to these places. So I you know, I just don't know that we can get there, but I do know that you know when you added these extra layers of not just physical security but visible. It definitely changed moods. 
you know, it changed my mood. It was kind of depressing and sad, to be honest with you, where you saw, you used to be able to walk up to the White House and kind of put your hand up to the fence. And for that period of time, just as an example, you couldn't even get, you know, I don't think you could even cross Pennsylvania Avenue. It was that, that fenced off. When you, when you think about departments too, this is what I, this is what I perceive. I perceive people within the FBI are like accountants. They're like accountant. They have like an accountant mindset in a way. And maybe people in the CIA have like a lawyer type of mindset. Accountants are very directional, very st- statistical. What do, you, what do you think about that type of analogy? And why, why is a, a department like the FBI getting so much slack in this day and time? Yeah, I think, you know, FBI, I, I think a, a, an atypical FBI agent thinks, thinks in terms of uh, right and wrong, good and bad. But then they also think like lawyers. So, and I think accountant thinks, you know, profits and loss. You know, did you, did mm-hmm. you owe the money, government money, or do you, are you getting money back? It's black and white. It's a math mm-hmm. and It's either or. It's not like, well, maybe, maybe the government owes you this and maybe you owe, it, there's no, no, it's either right or wrong. And then there's a lawyer aspect to it in terms of, okay, if there's a wrong, then can I prove the element of a crime that allows me to or us to fix that wrong, bring it justice, you know, stop it from happening, punish, protect victims, you know, get restitution, all those things that a a healthy justice system does, you know, under our rule of law, which is to have laws that people must abide by. And if they don't, then can they, a, a typical FBI agent, build a prosecutable case to stop a threat, try and fix whatever damage has been done to whatever victim because there's always a victim in a crime, whether it's the government, whether it's national security, whether it's you know political, you know public corruption. Public corruption is a big program in the FBI, and and if a, a a congressperson, regardless of their political affiliation, is on the take and corrupt, then we lose confidence in our elected leaders. So there's a there's a, a confidence factor that would need to be addressed in in a public corruption type environment that would be, you know, clearly under the, the jurisdiction of the FBI, but something that we would want as a society, someone looking at to make sure that, again, regardless of party, that, that our elected leaders, whether they're the dog catcher or the president of the United States, that they're, you know, not corrupt and they're they're acting with positive intent, <laughs> to your point, and, uh, you know, acting within the confines of, of ethics and, and criminal laws in regards to that. Because that would be tough, in my opinion, for when you understand, when you, going back to human behavior, when you understand how people digesting information and you have mm-hmm. a bunch of young, you know, guys come into an agency and, and you have almost like this unconscious bias of information they're bringing to the table. Is there anything that these agencies do where they try to maybe eliminate the unconscious bias from someone? Is there a process that tries to get them, you know, on a, on a, I don't know, a white, I don't know what you call it, a white plane or even plane mindset? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people, when you hire somebody, there's a lot of people have an internal preconceived, sure. you know, thoughts that they may not tell, you know, who they're working with. But how do you deal with unconscious bias in, in an agency like that? It's hard. It's hard. And, and every agency and every organization that conducts investigations or collects intelligence, at least in that space, has to deal with bias. And every one of us, jur- journalists, you know, your typical journalist, I don't care if you read the Washington Post or the Washington Times, each of those journalists that work, they bring in a bias, their own worldview 
And they're either fighting that bias when they write their article on that topic, or they're, they're going with their bias. FBI agents and, you know, CIA analysts, and they, they have to be cognizant of their bias. And, you know, the Bureau and the government works through that, through training and awareness, understanding, you know, being, being, recognizing that you have a bias on a variety of different aspects, but being, being not knowledgeable of that is, is kind of step one. I mean, look at the political bias, for example, you know, every FBI agent votes, and they will vote for one person versus the other. And maybe that changes over the course of their career. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter in terms of how they do their job. They, they should address the facts, regardless of whether it's someone they voted for or someone they didn't vote for. So it's a, it's a challenge. There's no question it's a challenge. And I think training and awareness has helped to mitigate bias as much as possible. But there, there always will be bias to a degree. That's why, you know, you, you, there's that old movie, FBI movie, and I can't remember. It's, it's like two white guys and, a, and two fedoras. <laughs> And they're interviewing a woman about a crime and she's a witness and she starts opining. I think he was this. I think he was that. It's like just the facts, ma'am. We just want the facts mm -hmm. and, and trying to, you know, just get the who, what, when, where and why is is part of that process of trying to eliminate bias and just look at things factually. And that will lead you potentially to a conclusion. And your conclusion may be wrong. But if, if you're focusing on just the facts versus bringing in your bias, that's probably the best example of how, how we can deal with that. Well, and I've been talking to a lot of scientists, a lot of neuroscientists, and talking about the non-conscious and those types of things. And, and when you and the non-conscious is never really talked about. And, and that's why kind of where science stops for some reason. But if you, if you look at the non-conscious, you look at the subconscious, understand what unconscious bias is, you understand what consciousness is. Then you take into play philosophy. You take in quantum physics. Is quantum physics or philosophy ever discussed? you know, slash creativity ever discussed in these agencies? Because obviously, you know, you had this inspiration to write this book. That's creativity. Uh, yeah. Is that ever talked about? Yeah, there's not a lot of room for creativity in the government. Let's be, <laughs> let's be <laughs> honest. Your interview reports don't start off with once upon a time <laughs> mm -hmm. or, you know, some kind of creative artistic approach and, and you make a, you make a very interesting point about writing a book and and uh, no there's there's usually from a creative perspective there's a left boundary guardrail and a right guardrail and you can be creative within the these this this space but you know for example a lot of um, the Chinese and the Russians will will use these uh, a, a recruitment technique called honey traps where they put, you know, they get a, a male business traveler and they put a young, attractive woman in front of him to see if they can uh, compromise. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's him. And, and if that doesn't work, they might try a young, attractive male. It's an intelligence recruitment technique that is as old as time. And, and the FBI, for example, if an agent said, I want to put a very attractive person in front of this Russian intelligence officer that we're trying to recruit, that's outside the creativity uh, zone of the Bureau. They would say absolutely not, because there's an ethic aspect to this that will not allow you to um, use that tech. This isn't this isn't a novel that you're writing. You're conducting an investigation. You've you've got your boundaries, and that's that. For example, is outside the the boundaries of creativity, shall we say? Well, I think there's a way to reverse engineer that, and I've been trying to like somewhat crack this code. I, I come up with this thing that God created everything in fours, and if you understand the non-conscious, it it, it kind of speaks to four human beings being created by God because they needed four types of non-conscious people to go in four different directions to start humanity the right way. And, that, and you know, science stops there. So if you look at quantum physics and you, and you look at certain things of, from a mathematical perspective, right? And I always say this too, there's always two mindsets and 99% of the people uh, come from a discovery mindset. Everything is looked at as discovery. If you look at things from a discovery mindset, it's going to take you a lot longer to get the answer to anything. So I don't know why we're stuck in that. But if you understand yeah. creation, you understand foundation, and you can come from a creation or foundational mindset and use quantum physics or whatever it is to rationalize an answer. I think that's a way you can implement some of these parts into the system. People just haven't figured it out yet. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. Um, I don't know that government is designed to handle that kind of, I don't want to say higher level thinking, but that, that paradigm, if you mm -hmm. will. Government has a function, whether it's to collect taxes, whether it's to put you know, low-income people into, into some kind of, you know, getting them off the street, whether it's to collect intelligence, whether it's to protect our borders. It's got a defined function within, you know, the the power that's been given by Congress, the people, and therefore, you know, I don't know that that kind of paradigm again would would fit in I don't know if that scales for government. Maybe it's because the best it, way for me to say. Because I've I've spoken to neuroscientist Giles Joe and had Dr. Leaf, Caroline Leaf on the show, and she's a neuroscientist as well, and and she said that we have neglected you know, mind management for 40 years, you know, we just, and that's where that, that non-conscious starts. Why, why can't we, why, why can't we go there? If it's going to help people, if it's going to solve problems, why can't an agency like the FBI or CIA, whoever it is, start thinking that way and, and start thinking about some of these mathematics that are, that are tied to these rationales based on human behavior. Because I, if you, because if you give me a big enough number of anything, I can determine the outcome from a human being, which has yeah. a lot of factors of, you know, I would say 20%, you know, philosophy, quantum physics, 
it always plays a factor and it's never considered in anything we do. You know, it's a big percentage of, of life, of everybody's life. I mean, I, I, I can only speak for the FBI. I mean, the FBI is very concerned about another terrorist attack and mm -hmm. hyper-focused on putting the attention and resources of the Bureau. You know, counterterrorism after 9-11 is the top priority. So if that's the case, then the goal is to prevent the next terrorist attack by collecting intelligence, identifying the right sources, working the investigations to try and determine predictive behavior, you know, trying to, which is incredibly difficult to do. Is this person who had a phone call with an Al-Qaeda member 10 years ago, is that person a threat or was that, you know, an innocent interaction or were they radicalized, you know, using the, the terrorism aspect given that that's the high, the top priority for, for the Bureau. So I don't know if it, it allows for time and energy to, to get into how would quantum physics fit into trying to make well, sure the next bomb doesn't go boom. Well, it's it, because I think that's a catch net where you're, you know, most of the time we're feeding off what we see, you know, and we're not, we're not being preventative. If you can understand some of these things from a foundational place, and be preventative, you're going to eliminate a lot of the bad customer before it happens, right? Instead of being a catch net, things are already down the road, right? So we're just going to chase that instead of, instead of being out front of that, create, let's create a, let's create a new situation. Let's create a new idea. Let's create and develop a new environment and get ahead of that narrative. Because if you continue to feed off what you see, you only continue to, to increase controversy. You increase opinions. And that's when I say like right now, you know, if you take the media out of play, the FBI doesn't have the bullshit that they the media says on either side or the CIA doesn't have the bullshit. If you take all that away, let's take the media out of play. Let's look at the foundational source and let's clean this up. Let's get rid of the bad agent. Let's get rid of the bad customer. Let's create a new environment. Let's get out ahead of this. Let's be preventative. I think we've settled into a space where we're always feeding off what we see. We're, we're catching everything after it's already down the road. I think this is where these rationales can come into play to help, help systems. If you eliminate a lot of the bullshit, go to the foundation and rebirth something, or birth something the right way, right? You eliminate a lot of the bad decisions. You eliminate a lot of the, the bad customers. Uh, you eliminate a lot of the bad response. I think if we understand foundation better and, and think of that from a rational standpoint, I think it works. It makes the job easier because it's like you're, you know, because the bullshit yeah. is just out of control. So are you talking about the bullshit in the FBI or... No, no, I'm just saying like, I'm just saying everything is overstated and probably 70% of it's not true. What the media says or not 80% probably what the media says is not true at some point, right? It's always, there's always a derivative, right? Or an objective opinion, a percentage here, a percentage there. If you based everything off percentages, you, instead of like letting these percentages grow, let's, let's reverse engineer that, that let's go to the foundation and start coming up and eliminating some of these percentages that may be bad within a system, right, that could cause a, a narrative to go one way or a narrative to go another way, then you don't have to worry about anything. Does that make sense? I think so. If we're talking about inside the FBI, I mean, if we're talking about outside. I'm just saying in any, any agency, any if it's FBI, yeah. CIA, I'm not trying to pin anything down because I kind of have this thought process of how I could apply this to anything. I can apply this to a human being. I can apply this to an agency, and you can find the answers to anything in a foundation. 
Well, let me ask you this. Can you find that? Can you apply that to Al Qaeda? Can you apply that to a terrorist organization that only wants to kill people, whether they're Americans, whether they're Israeli, whether they're anybody? You know, how, how do you apply that theory, your, your thought process, your, your paradigm to a terrorist organization where it's not the media? Oh, I, in my I can mind. Say the media is just a percentage. Yeah. Okay. If I applied it to a culture, Whatever it is, we start with the kids. You wonder why those people are so radical. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Because they're put, you know, by the time a kid is five, mm -hmm. he has a gun in his hand. Yeah. You know, when I think about a five year old carrying a gun, by the time they're 20 and 25, they're going to be yeah. pretty friggin' radical. Yeah. 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 Right. So if you start there with that foundation, yeah. Let's not put those guns because they could be good people. But we're radicalizing, you know, their cultures making the, their their population radical based yeah. on their practices. So when you go back to that foundation and let's stop putting that gun in that five year old's hand. And I bet you that radical situation slows down because we're creating a new position. We're creating a new environment. You can do that with anything. If you look at the foundation people, when people don't understand that and these absolutes come into play and then we try yeah. to hit people over the head with the absolutes. The absolutes come from the media. That's where the problems start, right? Instead of walking it back to where the percentage started, understand where the percentage started and fix that percentage where it started and do it the right way. And in the meantime, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with your, your philosophy. In the meantime, the government, the U.S. government has an, has an obligation to protect the American people. You know, they have an obligation to prevent 19 members of al-Qaeda flying airplanes and killing into buildings and killing 3,000 people. Can we try and win hearts and minds and create an atmosphere, a world atmosphere where five-year-olds aren't carrying guns and aren't hating America? I mean, yes, that's a great aspiration. But in the meantime, the American people expect the U.S. government writ large to do the best it can to protect it. And, and to look around the corner at, we can't assume positive intent with people groups that have tried to and have successfully killed Americans in cold blood. So yeah. I think I think both of them have to work, you know, we have to protect ourselves while we're trying to win hearts and minds, so to speak, and try that as best we can. But but it relies on a lot of other factors, you know, that are outside of our control. You know, the US government, the United States can't we're not the world leaders. I think it's a very ambitious a very altruistic and very difficult place to be. Very hard to pull off. But if you think about that, I mean, there's an answer there, you know, that's never really talked about universally. And maybe that's something people should consider. And going back to the, I just like, I just like pushing mindsets and I just think differently. I, re, I think I reverse, I think I'm dyslexic because I reverse engineer everything. But going back to the book, The, the Queen of Cuba, what's your, what's your goal with the book and, and, you know, putting this out to the world and, you know, it's, a, that's a great question and it's evolved and changed, you know, since I decided, I only decided to write the book just over two years ago. I never had an ambition to do this. And then when I made that decision, I wanted to, I had to say, okay, well, what kind of book are you trying to write? What's your voice? What it, What is your theme? People are complicated. No one is all bad or all good. There are people that believe what Anna did, that she's a hero. And there are people that believe that what she did was a crime and wrong. And that, you know, despite her committing a criminal, a very serious criminal 
act. There are good things about her that, you know, deserve to be recognized. So the the fact that people are complicated was a theme that I wanted to, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, for example, he did some pretty bad things, you know, against Dr. King and a lot of other people. And he's also the godfather of modern law enforcement. You know, he's godfather of the FBI. So he created an organization like the FBI that has done a lot of goods, even in even in the area of civil rights. But he's also done a lot of bad things. He's a complicated figure. And I think we're all complicated. So that was definitely one of the themes that I, I wanted to to write about. I wanted the pe- people to know, the reader to know about her. You know, because of 9-11, the case, the story did not get a lot of publicity. And there's a lot of people that I've talked to who who have said, you know, as I started doing media, I've never heard about this. I've never heard this story. So I wanted I wanted people to know the story. I think it's an important story. I think I wanted to share, you know, kind of bring people, you know, bring the curtain back of the FBI and what what does an FBI agent think? You know, there's been a lot of demonizing of of a of a typical FBI agent probably in the past since 2016, frankly, and I and I think that I wanted to show the American people that FBI employees they make mistakes. It's not it's not a flawless organization, institution, whatever you want to call it. But they're men and women who are trying to raise families. They're trying to find life partners. They're trying to raise kids and take care of parents and and have some time to cut the grass so their neighbors don't get pissed off at them. Oh, and by the way, you know, they're trying to prevent another 9-11. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're, yeah. they're trying to catch spies and they're trying to uh, do a public corruption case and they're trying to make our community safer. So because they live in these, they live in the same neighborhoods and the same towns and cities and country when it comes from a national security perspective, they're trying, they're trying to do the right thing the right way. So I really wanted to you know, humanize a, a typical FBI agent, you know, using my story as the the voice, if you will, and sharing with people, you know, that, that we do this job because we're patriotic, that because we care about our country, because we want to protect our neighbors and our nation. And yeah, we're going to fuck up from time to time. Hopefully I can say that, mm-hmm. but we'll make mistakes, but we, we have the best of intentions because we, we, we're really just trying to honor the constitution and protect the American people. Well, I, I think you have a, a good heart for what you represent. And I think, you know, the absolute factor that society tries to weigh on everything and everybody and put everybody in a box is is wrong. Yeah. yeah you, you know what I mean? And, and that should be when I say when you walk that percentage back and you understand where that percentage started, just like you said in the start of this interview is like you wanted to get that gold ring or what do you call it? The brass mm-hmm. ring. The brass ring, yeah. You know, that's a big deal for you personally, just because there's this narrative, a few narratives out here, you know, society shouldn't put this narrative as an absolute on top of everybody's head. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, I think we're all complicated people. Now, with that kind of paradigm in mind, I I have a hard time figuring out, like, what was the good side of Hitler? (laughs) You know, what was the good side of Osama bin Laden? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe they were really good uncles. I don't know, but like with certain people, I'm kind of struggling to find, you know, I don't know that they're like complicated. I think they're, they're kind of evil, but those are maybe the extreme cases of, you know, people, I guess, I don't know. I guess to put that in perspective, you know, I think it goes to understanding how human beings are programmed, you know, and I think 
at a certain point of people's lives, they are who they are. And if that's what you have to defend to protect our country, then that's what you have to do. I'm just saying, if you if you understand understand where percentages started, and and you see what that percentage is doing to the people that you can't bring back, mm-hmm. let's start catering something different where that percentage started, and maybe we'll we'll have less people that we can't bring back. You know what I'm saying? That that make it through or <laughs> that are going yeah. a different direction because I think like me and you, we're already programmed. We are who we are. Yeah. You know. I just think you got to look at the younger generation and kids and, and start thinking about those things. And people cannot put these absolutes on top of, I mean, how many people work for the FBI? Thousands and thousands of people. The, these narratives can't speak for everybody, yeah. you know, and, and society needs to understand that as well. I mean, there's, a, there's definitely balance and there's understanding and, and, and you can't, you know, getting that brass ring and you can't fault people that somewhat are in that middle space and, and doing the right thing, living their lives right, doing what they're supposed to do, protecting the country. This is my job. And understanding that you can't fault people for that because that's what you strive to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think, you know, it's a very tough equation, but I'm, I'm just a very, very deep thinker. And these are things that are like, you know, how can we help? You know, how can we help humanity? And I think it starts with the kids and redesigning how these kids understand things moving forward. You know, I don't I don't know what we do to teach people about that. I don't know. Maybe keep planting the seed. Some someday some things will change, you know. I just hate I hate to see some of the positions we're in in this day and time with every craziness that's going on in the world, you know. Yeah. I mean, look at our politics. I mean, you know, we demonize the other side, whether if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you, you, you can't even have a conversation with people that have different views from you politically without them being, they're all bad. You know, they're, they're, there's yeah. nothing good about that, that party, that person who voted that way for that individual or that individual. It doesn't matter. We, we demonize them and we don't under, I don't think we appreciate the complicatedness of every individual, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, worldviews and political beliefs. So I, I hear you. I mean, that's, it's tough. And how do you, how do you, I have three children. How do I, how do I educate them or hopefully enrich them with some ideas about keeping an open mind and, and, um, you know, not judging people right off the bat, you know, and, uh, you know, leaving, giving some space and, you know, to your point, assuming positive intent, which is really hard to do. It's a, that's, that's a really difficult, that's a life skill that, you know, if you could, if you can invent how to do that, you're going to make a hell of a lot of money. You know, the pill that allows everyone to take and they assume positive intent. It's so important and so underappreciated, I think. Well, you know, the best thing about life, life. Well, yeah. yeah. (laughs) That was a soft, that was a softball question. Damn it. <laughs> that was an easy one. Hey, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Because that, uh, yeah. it's funny. You remind me of one of my best friends in New Jersey is y'all got kind of the same, same energy and so forth. We used to hang out in the porch and talk for hours about stuff. He'd get mad at me. I'd get mad at him. And <laughs> but we were best friends. We were best friends. But, uh, yeah, man. I mean, I hope the book, if, if we want to find the book, Queen of Cuba, where do we, where do we get this book at? Wherever you buy books, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Target, wherever. I think it's a true crime thriller. It's a spy thriller. It's a, you know, it's a nonfiction. It's a real story, obviously, but I think it reads like a, a spy thriller and it, 
you'll get to read a little bit about me. Kelly Kennedy, my co-writer, and I, she encouraged me to write about me, which I, I was okay with writing a little bit, but she kept pushing me because I think she felt that the reader was going to want to learn a little bit about who is who is Pete Lapp. The book is written from my point of view, obviously, and, and I think the reader wanted to know, well, who the hell is this guy? What made him what made him believe? What made him want to grab that brass ring? What was the hook for you in the book? Like when you were going through this in real time in your life and you started thinking about the story, what was the hook? What was like the, something that really, really grabbed you mentally within this time of your life with, based on this story? You know, I got to relive the investigation in writing the book, and that was a thrill. The 10 months that I worked with my partner, Steve, the cat and mouse kind of working the investigation was the thrill of my professional life. My, my, the, the other 21 years of my career paled in comparison to this period of time. So I got to relive the good moments of, of the investigation. I got to reconnect with some of the people that I had worked with who I hadn't talked with to in a long time. And, and I got some nuggets of things that I never knew that are in the book that are really, really interesting. I got to, I got to explain the real story about how the case began for the FBI and, and the telling of that and the FBI allowing me to tell it almost, almost to its entirety was kind of a breakthrough for me. And, and, and because you, you have the, the story I've been telling all these years to the government or to other audiences, to be able to tell it more fulsomely has been such a, a, a really a, a great gift. And I think it just makes the story that much better. And the, my version of this story, the government has never told in its entirety the way it was told in my book because it went through the pre-publication review process. The government got to see my manuscript and wouldn't say right, wrong, true, false, only reviewed it for classified information. And uh, that's why you'll see some redactions. You get the onion. The onion describes the black. The government just figured out it's been using black highlighters all these years. So I got my black highlighter out. Had to put a couple things and redact it. But this is this is the true telling of the real story. And I think it's uh, I think it's a good story. I think it's an important story. If you hear something, you know, hear some of these narratives out in the world. A narrative doesn't define the thousands of people uh, by the sign on the door. I think we need to understand that. Look forward to reading the Queen of Cuba. And this has been uh, former FBI agent Peter J. Lapp. And my name's John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 